hppodcraft.com. The Phantom of the Opera did exist. He was not born out of the imagination of the artists, the superstition of the managers, or the ludicrous fancy and overexcited brains of the young ladies of the ballet. Yes, he did exist in flesh and blood, although he assumed in every respect the appearance of a ghost, that is, of a shadow. When I consulted the archives of the National Academy of Music, I was immediately struck by the curious coincidences between the mishaps attributed to the ghost and an exceedingly mysterious and extraordinary tragedy that occurred at the same time. I soon conceived the idea that the former might provide a rational explanation for the latter. The events in question took place no more than 30 years ago. Even today, it would not be difficult to meet in the ballet room elderly gentlemen who can remember as if it were only yesterday the mysterious and dramatic circumstances that surrounded the abduction of Christine Daae, the disappearance of Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, and the death of his elder brother, Count Philippe, whose body was found on the shore of the underground lake that lies beneath the Paris Opera House. However, until now, it would not have occurred to any of these witnesses that the somewhat mythical character of the Phantom of the Opera might have something to do with that dreadful affair. C'est magnifique! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to add another classic monster to the HP Podcraft roster. We've covered Dracula, Frankenstein, yes. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, mm. the werewolf, the invisible man. We've been all over mummies, and the mummies have been all over us. And now, <laughs> it's time for the Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera is here. Christine! Angel! On HP Podcast. <laughs> We've got to get this out of our system now because we are going to be covering the novel, the novel, The Phantom of the Opera, yes. by Gaston LaRue, not the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. No. Although that musical is sick, bro. <laughs> the drum machine on that title track is hella tight. <laughs> no. We will be discussing the classic book that show is based on, and we'll be covering it all month here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here on HPPodcraft.com, and of course, Patreon. Speaking of the classic monsters, I was wondering, as we dive into this, um, what is the Phantom's archetype, or what is he a metaphor for? Oh. You know, why, why is the Phantom a classic mm. monster? Because, you know, Dracula represents the thief of vitality, the person who mm. dominates and destroys others. The werewolf and Dr. Jekyll represent the duality of man, the struggle with our baser natures, uh, addiction. And Jekyll also leads us into the mad scientist archetype, along with the Invisible Man and Frankenstein, right. pushing the boundaries of science irresponsibly. And, of course, Frankenstein's monster is that deformed hero archetype, which I think the fan of the opera falls into as well. He's the, the deformed hero, a lot like uh, Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm -hmm. although the Phantom is much more malign than The Hunchback. Yeah. It was kind of funny when I was thinking about those two books. We often talk about how horror stories fit into that monster in the house genre. Mm -hmm. And c could you have two titles that are more explicit about that than <laughs> The Hunchback of Notre Dame or The Phantom <laughs> of the Opera? You know, It tells you yes. who the monster is and what the house is in the title. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the one thing I thought that is unique about The Phantom of the Opera, where it stands apart from the other monster classics, is that he represents not the mad scientist, but the mad artist. Oh, this this yeah. is really the template for that. His overriding monstrous passion for beauty drives him to commit acts of cruelty. And speaking of mad artists... Who was that reader? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Chris. That was my friend and fantastic actress, Jamie Andrews. I see Jamie here around Los Angeles, but she's since moved to Atlanta. Yollywood, as they call it. Uh, <laughs> you may have seen Jamie in Good Girls Revolt on Amazon. She was a field interviewer on Penn & Teller's Bullshit, which I used to love that 
on oh, the show. Yeah. But most importantly, she is in the horror masterpieces Baby Geniuses 3, 4, and 5. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. She's also in the Baby Geniuses television series, which is frankly too scary for me to watch. What? But uh, yeah, Jamie's Jamie's part of the Baby Genius universe. Wow. <laughs> which is amazing. Thank you, Jamie, for reading for the show. Thank you so much. Uh, I have no idea what Lovecraft thought of the Phantom of the Opera. I couldn't find anything from him about it, but stories mm-hmm. by the author Gaston LaRue did appear in Weird Tales alongside Lovecraft's work. So I'm sure he was aware of him, and he likely read this book. Certainly he himself was fascinated with mad artists. That's what I was thinking about with that archetype, because, you know, you got Pikmin, you have Eric Zahn. He did mad artists just as much as he did mad scientists. Now, The Phantom of the Opera was written in 1910 by Gaston Louis-Alfred LaRue. And I was actually quite surprised by this because I thought it was older. Yeah, well, the the story in the book is set in the early 1880s. So I think folks assume it's from that period. Gaston was born in 1869 and he lived until 1927. So he was actually around for the Lon Chaney film that came out in 1925. Yes. And there was actually an earlier German adaptation, film adaptation from 1916 called Das Gespenst im Opernhaus. It's uh, now a lost film. You can't see it. And I bring it up only because I wanted to say that title. (laughs) And said it, you did. (laughs) Now, LaRue went to law school in Paris, graduated in 1889. He inherited a lot of money, but somehow managed to blow it all. He was a gambler, but clearly did not know when to hold them or when to fold them. (laughs) After that, he worked as a court reporter and a journalist, and he was in Russia during the revolution and covered it as a journalist in 1905. Most importantly, LaRue was a theater critic, and his brother Joe was a musician. Uh, in fact, he dedicates the Phantom of the Opera to my good old brother, Joe, who has nothing of a ghost, but definitely something of an angel of music like Eric. Hmm. Spoiler alert, the Phantom is named Eric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Scary Eric in the Opera House was not a good title, so that's not what they went with. This music and opera knowledge that LaRue acquired in this period uh, is used throughout this novel to foreshadow events. It goes over my head for the most part. The operas and the specific pieces in the operas that are being performed in the theater at certain times mirror the action of the book. Ah, We will describe almost none of that in these shows, but just to let you know. (laughs) So in 1907, LaRue left journalism and got into fiction writing. He partnered up with Arthur Bernade and made a film company that would publish books and then turn them into movies. Cool. He created amateur detective Joseph Rudabel, who was said to be the Sherlock Holmes of France. Yes, The Mystery of the Yellow Room was a big one featuring that character. One of the first locked room mystery novels, as in... You know, murder happens in a locked room, so how could it possibly have happened? Hmm. Leroy was a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And in fact, this novel is really constructed like a mystery, with our narrator piecing together the truth of what really happened with The Phantom of the Opera. Now, we'll talk more about LaRue as we go on, as we've got a lot to cover, because we're going to do this whole novel in four episodes. Yes, and there's a lot of novel here. I must have read an abridged version of this when I was younger. I found it in the East Moline Public Library in this beautiful uh, picture book edition that had paintings in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, it's uh, the one that was illustrated by Greg Hildebrandt. Oh, you know it. Okay, you know the guy. I That's do, cool. yeah. Right. I had that copy, and there was also uh, Dracula that he did. There might have been a few other books, but those are the two that I remember. Well, I don't remember if the text in that's abridged or not, but that's where I read it for the first time, and it was such a rip-roaring adventure yarn. You know, I really got through it fast. Mm-hmm. It's either that the story was that good or that it was abridged that made me feel like I read it really fast. But that edition's great. I think I'm going to look for that and order it. Right now, I'm reading the story in, a, in the annotated Penguin Classics edition, and it's chock full of facts. I actually had to stop looking at the annotations because it was slowing me up so much as I read. And I'm only as far into the book right now as we will get in this episode of the show, the first fourth. Mm -hmm. 
There's a lot to cover, so we need to get going. But as we do these shows over the month, I will be getting more and more knowledgeable by reading these annotations. <laughs> There's also a huge introduction to the book that I haven't dug into yet. Get ready for some facts at a later time. Right now, let's dig into the story. Our story begins with a prologue. The author, Gaston LaRue, is the writer of the introduction and is making this story out to be real. Like, I've done all this research. It's sort of a, a found document kind of thing yeah. where the actual author of the book is saying that he did all this stuff. Obviously, he didn't do any of it. It's all <laughs> fiction. But it's lots of fun, and it kind of gets you into it. He's looking to the mysterious case of the Phantom of the Opera. And as we heard at the top, he believes that the ghost was real, but not actually a ghost, just a flesh and blood person. Uh, another thing that this book is a template for, Scooby-Doo. I mean, this is kind of your original <laughs> it is masked it is. fake monster. I guess that makes Gaston the original Shaggy. There you go. Yes. So he consults the archives of the National Academy of Music and ties the Phantom into three unsolved cases. Christine Daae's kidnapping, Raoul de Chagny's disappearance, and the death of Raoul's brother, Philippe. He feels his research is going nowhere until he talks to the former magistrate of the cases, who is now the manager of the archives. Yeah, by chance he ran into this guy, and the, and the magistrate knows all about the case of the Phantom. So this is present day 1910, and this case is from 30 years before that. Early 1881, I think, is, is when this happens. This former magistrate knows of a witness called the Persian who claimed to have known the Phantom. Now, I've lived in the UK for 10 years, and still nobody calls me the American. <laughs> you never got that, uh, that nickname, no. huh? Well, not to your face. I'm sure that when Rachel's disappointed in you, she says it under her breath. <laughs> The American. <laughs> I'm sure she says lots of things under her breath. <laughs> so LaRue goes to see the Persian who is able to give him lots of info, including letters from Christine Daae. He lives locally, and LaRue was lucky to catch him because he says, uh, LaRue writes, that he died five months after they spoke. So after doing a little background checking, he's able to deduce that the Persian was an honorable man and that he should be believed. And the Persian has actual evidence. He has contents to correlate. Correspondence from Christine Daae herself. Actually, there's a lot of this book, as you said, that is epistolary. Mm -hmm. uh, LaRue will use letters and excerpts from memoirs, etc., to piece the mystery together. So LaRue writes to other people connected to the case and shows them the letters of Christine Daae. They believe LaRue, and they want him to print what he discovers, even if it means admitting that the Phantom was real. It seems that people think the two brothers killed each other, even though they were boon companions. So the family wants people to know that they weren't the murdering type. Lastly, LaRue goes down to the underground domain of the Phantom, there are workmen down there to build more storage for the opera, and they discover a corpse. And LaRue believes that this is the corpse of the Phantom. Eventually, he's going to confirm it somehow, but we don't know how yet. Well, it's just it's just a skeleton, and it's got that half mask on the skull, and it's cradling a rose, so they know that it's the Phantom <laughs> of the opera. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> he's a, the skeleton's even wearing a t-shirt from uh, the Chicago Touring Company. <laughs> show. The press claims that he was a victim of the commune. I believe they're talking about the Paris commune, which yeah. only was in power for a few months in 1871, and that, mm -hmm. that commune was a big part of our story that we covered, the werewolf of Paris. Yeah, that, that's what that's all about. We talked about the commune arts ex extensively on those werewolf mm -hmm. of Paris shows and all of the horrible murdering that went on around that time in France. Yes. Now, but the body that they found was on the other side of the wall from where all the victims of the commune arts were found. So yeah. LaRue doesn't buy that that's the explanation. Now, the author says, let's quit pussyfooting around and get to the damn story. So, chapter one, is it a ghost? We begin on the final night for the directors of the Paris Opera House, Debienne and Polony. There is going to be a big gala performance to honor their leaving. A bunch of dancers 
however, are freaking out, they storm the dressing room of La Sorelli, who is one of the principal dancers. Mm-hmm. One of these dancers, little Jamie, locks the door and says that it's a ghost out there. And Sorelli is very skeptical of this, but she's actually quite superstitious. Mm-hmm. They claim that they've seen an ugly figure cloaked in black who came out of nowhere. For several months before this, there have been sightings. Anything odd that's happening is being blamed on this ghost. It's a legend that they're all conversant with. This opera ghost has been around for a while. And one of the chief scene shifters in the opera, Joseph Bouquet. Joseph Bouquet, hold your tongue. (laughs) Uh, He has actually seen and described the Phantom of the Opera. He is extraordinarily thin, and his black coat hangs on a skeleton frame. His eyes are so deep-set that you cannot make out his pupils. All you can see are two big black holes as in a skull. His skin is stretched over his bones like a drumhead and is not white, but an ugly yellow. His nose is almost non-existent when seen sideways, and this absence is a horrible thing to behold. As for his hair, it consists of no more than three or four long, dark strands on his forehead and behind his ears. So we got a Michael Jackson-looking dude haunting (laughs) up on this theater. (laughs) <laughs> Horrifying. There are different opinions of how the Phantom looks. A fireman claims that he saw a floating head of fire coming at him. These two descriptions are pretty different, but the girls, they conclude that the ghost just has two heads. Right. And not all at once. They actually conclude that he has interchangeable heads. Yes. So you can put on whatever, you know, a head for every occasion, which is a pretty <laughs> awesome theory. Sorelli dismisses the dancers, but they all claim they saw the ghost. This girl, Little Meg, speaks up and says that the ghost should be left alone, and she reveals that her mother secretly talks with the ghost, and that the ghost has a private box in the opera, Box 5. And they keep it open just for the ghost, and no one else is allowed to sit there. Just then, they hear little, little Jamie's mother calling to her daughter, and she's freaking out. Joseph Bouquet's body has been found. He's dead. <gasps> Shouldn't have been walking around describing the Phantom, man. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> It's so true. Yeah. So the narrator says that they deemed his death a suicide, yet they found no rope at the scene. Yeah, there's some story that he hung himself and then somebody cut him down, but nobody saw the person cut him down. And even Mm -hmm. if he was cut down, the rope is totally missing from the scene. So it's all very odd. I mean, obviously, the Phantom killed this fool. And that's our introduction to the character, to the real character of the Phantom of the Opera. Not only does he look disturbing, he's a really bad guy. Because in the real world, he just murdered somebody. Yeah. Joseph was well-liked, and everybody is really freaked out by his death. And that gets us into Chapter 2, The New Margarita. Mm, Sounds delicious. Actually, in my book, it's The New Marguerite. I mean, this is a reference to the role that Christine Daae has taken over for the night in question in this chapter. We are introduced to Philippe. He's coming backstage to tell the dancers that Christine Daae was awesome in the show, but Meg says that six months ago, she sang like a croc. I don't know if that's my translation or not, but uh, (laughs) probably not. She wasn't a great singer. She was very tentative and weak, and now suddenly she's amazing. She also says that they shouldn't tell the outgoing directors about the death of Joseph Bouquet because it would upset them too much. Don't want to ruin their party. They gather in the ballet room and recount how great the night's performance was. Christine is kick-ass. She rocked Juliet previously, and now she's rocking her role as Marguerite in Faust. Yeah, this gala performance, it was actually all excerpts from a bunch of different operas. So she did both Juliet and Marguerite that night and just blew everybody away. And critics are trying to figure out why the directors have been keeping her hidden away, because nobody's seen her before. She's an overnight sensation, and Carlota was supposed to be performing, but she is a no-show, so Christine, as her understudy, stepped in. 
Just a note about the dancers, it was particular to French opera to have segments of ballet in all of the shows. Even if there was no ballet in the original opera, hmm. it had to be squeezed in there when the opera was performed in Paris. Those audiences, they just wanted some dancing to break things up. It was chief characteristic of that type of theater at the time. But a lot of action in this story takes place between rich people like the Count and the ballet dancers in the ballet room. Ballet room, you can see it in your mind. It's just probably the room with the bar and the mirrors where they do their practicing and stuff. But I found this footnote about it very interesting. Ballet room, known in French as La Foyer de la Danse, a studio behind the stage where female dancers practiced their steps and warmed up before their performances into which wealthy and influential patrons were permitted access. This much-coveted salon was a social institution particular to the Paris Opera and functioned in many respects like a traditional gentleman's club. So they're going there and hanging out and smoking and drinking and watching these dancers. It says, given the dancers often meager pay, it also served as a room where sexual favors might be negotiated. Whoa! These ballet dancers oftentimes almost functioned as strippers or prostitutes. Many layers to the profession that they had. So I, 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 found, I found that really fascinating. <laughs> I did not know that. So the narrator gives us a little bio on Count Philippe. He's 41 years old. After his parents died, he became the head of the family, managing the estate and taking care of his younger brother, Raoul, as well as his two sisters. Raoul, the Vicomte de Chagny, is uh, 20 years younger than his brother, so a shiny 21 years old. Raoul joined the Navy and was shy and innocent. Yeah, he did this when he was a teenager, traveled the world, despite being worldly like that he's still very much an innocent and uh, he plans to take off again soon for an arctic expedition they're going to go find some survivors of another expedition we know that always turns out well <laughs> given the fiction that we've covered that, that was kind of a funny little detail they threw in there that that's what he's yeah. about to do uh, uh-huh. but for now he has some time before that expedition takes off he's going to lounge around paris and just kind of get into young trouble philippe has a good work-life balance and he is said to have shacked up with uh, sorelli who is a straight-up hottie. Yeah. On that night of the performance, Raoul notices that Christine seems like she's about to faint. She performed so hard, and she meant it so much, that she straight passed out at the conclusion of her performance. <laughs> it was that rocking, which is awesome, and it's exactly actually what I do after we record every show. <laughs> when you hear me say hppodcraft.com at the end, I'm out for like a half hour after that. I just fall down yeah. on the floor in here. Yeah, Heather has a, a mattress by your recording equipment ready to go. Yeah, she puts the mattress down here behind me. She's got a glass of water next to it, and then she smacks me. And <laughs> It's kind of our, our little ritual. Raul and Philippe manage to get past all the people that want to see Christine, who is still in swoon. They're able to get her doctor to clear everybody else out. So Philippe leaves to go hook up with Sorelli and leaves his brother with Christine, and he's kind of pleased that his brother obviously has got some game. Yeah, Philippe notices that Rule knew exactly how to make his way to Christine's dressing room after the performance. In the dark, backstage, with a ton of other people around. I mean, he's clearly been creeping on her. So Christine comes to, and she asks Raoul who he is, because she doesn't seem to know him. And he tells her, I'm the little boy who went into the sea to rescue your scarf. Mm. Christine stands up, seemingly recovered, and she just asks everybody to leave. Raul hangs outside her door, hoping to speak with her again. Yeah, he, w- he wanted to pull one of those swoon kisses like we saw in that story, Ashes. <laughs> but she booted him, and he's got to lurk around outside the closed door, which he does for a while, just waiting for her to come out. But then... He can overhear a man's voice from inside the room. Christine, you must love me! <laughs> And Christine's voice, infinitely sad and trembling, as though accompanied by tears, replied, How can you talk like that when I sing only for you? God, you're breaking my heart, Lackey. Oh, tonight I give you my soul, and I am dead. Your soul is a beautiful thing, child, replied the grave man's voice, and I thank you. No emperor ever received a gift so fair. The angels wept tonight! (laughs) Bless Michael Crawford. You know, I have seen Phantom 
of the opera on stage and it was fine but he's the original guy for the soundtrack i love him so much yeah angel yeah. so raul is pissed and he wants to kick this guy's ass because he's in his lady's dressing room yeah christine leaves the room after a bit wrapped in furs wearing a veil blows right past raul doesn't even see him in the hallway and he wants to know who this guy is in there because he didn't see him leave so raul goes into the room and it's totally dark he shouts at the man for hiding in the dark like a coward and then he lights a match, but he discovers that nobody is there. <gasps> he thinks he's gone mad. And then he sees people carrying the stretcher with Joseph Bouquet upon it. Zoinks, it's the Phantom! <laughs> and that gets us into Chapter 3, The Mysterious Reason. They're having this farewell ceremony for the leaving directors in the ballet room when little Jamie cries out, The opera ghost! And everyone laughs, but she insists that she saw it with his death's head. I guess that's like a skull, right? That's what yeah. a death's head is, right? He's in skull with, mode, yeah. Uh, with... <laughs> skull mode uh, with hollow eyes and she saw him in the crowd and everybody laughs and toasts to the opera ghost this he's got some weird games here like i guess he just shows up and hangs out here and there and then disappears so the old managers leave to go upstairs and meet with the new managers armand moncherman and Furman richard they then go down for the banquet now during this banquet at the end of the table people start to notice that there is a man skinny and creepy the stories vary because remember it's LaRue telling us this story so yeah. he's like taking all these different things and kind of putting this together he says the stories vary but everyone believed that this was the ghost some say he had a transparent nose as if it were fake could have been the invisible man but likely it was the phantom again it, it's he's just showing up to start some gossip and then disappearing he's an awful murderer but he's also kind of hilarious <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> He's a prankster. The man at the end of the table says that uh, Bouquet's death might have not been natural. Debienne and Polony didn't know that he was dead. This is the first they've heard about Bouquet's yeah. death, and then they get all freaked out about this. Of course. Debienne and Polony tell the new guys that they should have all the locks changed and that there really is a ghost in the opera house. And the new guys, they think it's a joke. But then they say, hey, look, the ghost made demands and you must adhere to the rules. They produce a book that's written in black ink and it has lots of technical legal stuff within it. But there's additional writing in red and it seems to have been written by a child. These are the rules that the Phantom has laid out for management. They have to pay him a salary, an allowance of 20,000 francs a month. And uh, also it says box five on the grand tier shall be placed at the disposal of the opera ghost for every performance. So they have to leave that box open for him. The new guys still think this is a joke that they're putting them on. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of laugh and shake hands and say, okay, sure, whatever. But they plan on obviously ignoring the vice because they think it's a joke. And the next chapter is uh, box five. The new directors are two sides of the same coin. Moncherman is the business mind of the duo. He knows little about music, whereas Richard is a famous composer and musician. He is well-liked, but is known to have a rough temper. Now, one morning, Richard finds a letter in that red ink and childlike handwriting, and the note says that Christine Daae should be given the new roles, and Carlota is terrible, and she just needs to go. He also says that he must have his box back since they've been letting it out for the past few shows. Mm -hmm. If you wish to live in peace, you must not begin by taking away my private box. And then it's signed, your most humble and obedient servant, the opera ghost. Mon Sherman enters and they both have a good laugh, thinking that this is just the joke continuing, that, you know, somebody's putting them on right. it's like kind of a, a fun little razz. So they reserve the box for Debienne and Polony, thinking it's them doing the joke and they're doing this so they can get box seats. Right. So the next day, they get a letter from the Phantom thanking them for the box and Christine's performance. But the Phantom then requests his money. Uh, they also get a letter from Debienne and Polonais restating that the box is for the ghost, not for us. So they didn't even show up to claim it. 
and they're very serious about this ghost business. By the way, a lot of these letters, the Phantom signs as OG, which I think is just funny. <laughs> opera, that's his abbreviation for Opera Ghost. Yeah. But the new manager's getting really annoyed by this, and they decide they're going to go ahead and sell the box out for the next show. So the next morning, the managers get a report that there was an issue with Box 5. It seems some party people who were booked in there were told by a voice that the box was taken, <laughs> and no one was seen in the box. So again, they think it's a joke, but the box keeper claims it was the ghost. The people in Box 5 were provoked to laughter so much by the voice in the box that they were being disruptive and they had to leave the theater. So they call the woman in who attends it, that's uh, Madame Geary, mm. to get to the bottom of this whole thing. And that's little Meg Geary's mother. She tries to explain that the ghost is real, but Richard just wants to know what happened last night. She said that it was the Phantom who warned those people away and that he is to be listened to. They ask her if she's spoken to the ghost, and she says, yes, uh, he tells me to bring him a footstool. And the managers laugh at that, uh, but she doesn't. <laughs> they ask why a ghost would need a footstool, and she says, well, it's the ghost of a man. He has a man's voice. Oh, such a lovely man's voice. Whenever she converses with the Phantom, it's just his voice she hears. And then she says, well, the footstool isn't actually for him. It's for his lady. And they're like, oh, cool. Now the ghost is married. This gets more and more interesting. <laughs> she says that the ghost always left her two francs, sometimes five, even ten. One time he left a fan behind accidentally, and she brought it back the next night, and then it was gone. Madame Geary is sort of the Renfield of the situation. You know, she's somewhat allied with the Phantom. Although, yes. a little involuntarily. So that gets us into Chapter 5, The Enchanted Violin. Christine Daae only did one performance at that gala night, and then, for some reason, bowed out. She did some private performances at a party, and they were just as amazing as the gala night. Uh, she used to not be so good, but now she's totally the best. Philippe tries to help her get more gigs, but Christine puts the brakes on that, and Raoul tries to call on her, but she wrote a letter warning him away. She said that she did remember the boy who rescued her scarf, but that she must go to Brittany to honor her father's death. Now, Raoul, stalker-like, books a train to Brittany to find her and to get her alone. Based on their shared history, he has a good idea of where she's going. So on the way there, he remembers Christine's story, so we get some of her backstory. She's a Swedish peasant girl, and her father was really into music, and he was a fiddler of some renown, uh, one of the best in Sweden. Her mother died when she was six, and her father played at fairs and was noticed by this guy, Professor Valerius, and he took her father and her to Gothenburg and then to Paris for music education. Christine was tutored by Valerius's wife, who took care of her like a daughter. Her father missed his homeland and would play in his room alone, softly. And there was this place in Brittany, Paros, that he loved because it reminded him of home. Often Christine and her father would travel and play and sing for no money. And it was one of these journeys that she met Raoul. Mm -hmm. And Raoul heard her play and he was enchanted with her. Her scarf flew into the sea. She cried and Raoul jumped in and got her scarf for her. Her father was so impressed with the boy, he decided to give him lessons, and the two kids lived together for a while. One of the games Raoul and Christine would play would be to knock on strangers' doors and ask them to tell them some of their local legends. So they had sort of ghostly play together. They were told a few stories of the angel of music that would come to people in their dreams and would gift them with great musical skill. No one ever sees the angel, they only hear it. And she tells her father, and he says, You will hear him one day, my child. When I am in heaven, I will send him to you. Oh, that's very sweet of him. Yeah. And he, you know, he admits he's never met the angel of music, but he thinks his daughter will. So three years later, Christine and Raoul meet again in Paros. He told her that he loved her and she him, but they could never be together because he was a noble and she was a mere singer. 
So she tried to forget him by focusing on her art. You know, that's the interesting. She sang so well at this gala performance that he's given up all of the social standing stuff. He's like, I must have her. I don't care that she's just a lowly performer. So when her father died, she lost all passion for music. However, she was still good enough to make it into the Paris Conservatory. Mm-hmm. Raoul saw her perform, but noted that she lost her passion. She also pretended not to recognize him. Yeah, she was just very standoffish and aloof, and it seems that her father's death really took away her desire to be a singer. And apparently, there really was an opera ghost legend, I don't know if we mentioned that up at the top, that LaRue was capitalizing on. There was supposedly this Phantom of the Opera. That was really a a thing that people batted around back in the day. And this character of Christine is actually based on a real person. I'm pulling this from my annotation here. Christine Daae's life story echoes that of the famous Swedish soprano Christine Nilsson, uh, 1843 to 1921 who is considered to be the most convincing musical and dramatic embodiment of the idea of Marguerite in Faust, and whose creation of Ophelia in Thomas's Hamlet set the standard for generations to come. The parallels are striking. The daughter of a poor working man, Christine Nilsson, was born in uh, Sweden, moved to the village of Skatlov when her family was forced to leave their cottage. From a very young age, the blonde, blue-eyed girl sang and played the fiddle at local country fairs. One day at a fair, her precocious talent was noticed by the district judge who took her to Gothenburg on the southwest coast of Sweden and provided the means for her education. She sang in Stockholm and then went to Paris, where after four years' study, she made her debut in uh, La Traviata. So this was a real person, and that was basically her background. Raoul goes to the only inn in the village, and he finds her. He tells her that he loves her, and she says that her father told her that he would come. And he tells Christine that he can't live without her, but she doesn't seem to feel the same way. She says her father told her that Raoul would come to her? Oh, that's right. That's why she wasn't surprised that he showed up. So she's talking to her dead father somehow. She thinks she is. It says uh, there was something in Christine's attitude that seemed to Raoul not natural. He did not feel any hostility in her, far from it. The distressed affection shining in her eyes told him that. But why was this affection distressed? That was what he wished to know and what was irritating him. He wants to know why she pretended not to remember him, but she won't answer. He tells her what he heard the night of the show, you know, the voice of the man in the Mm -hmm. room. And she cries and runs away. Something's going on with this broad. <laughs> something, something funny. After that, she won't see him. So Raul goes to the graveyard where her father is buried. There, he sees a bunch of piled up bones and skulls, which creeps him out, makes mm-hmm. a mental note of it, but then doesn't worry about it at that point. He goes on up to the top of the nearby hill and he looks over at the sea. Christine, she comes to him. She tells him that her father sent the angel of music and that his voice is the voice that Raul heard in the dressing room. The angel has been teaching her in her dressing room. Yeah, that's the way it works. Uh, Raul laughs at this, but this just makes her angry. And she says, what kind of girl do you think I am? I would never be alone with a man in my dressing room. And she says, no one was there. And Raul says, well, yeah, I, I actually checked and the room was empty. But he says, this must be some kind of trick or joke. And she just cries at that and runs away. Typical first date. <laughs> Christine won't have anything to do with him. So Raul sneaks out and he follows Christine when she leaves the inn. Mm-hmm. He follows her to the churchyard at night. And as the clock strikes midnight, music begins to play and Christine raises her arms. Now, the music doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere. And the, the song is the same music her father used to play. After the music stops, Raul thinks he's heard where it's come from, and he thinks it's that pile of bones, so he goes to investigate. As Christine leaves the cemetery, the bones begin to fall at Raul, and a shadow comes out of them, and it's a man in black. And he runs into the church, and Raul gives chase. The shadow had already pushed open the door and was entering the church. I rushed in pursuit and saw that the shadow wore a hooded cloak. Quick as a flash, I grabbed hold of it. At that moment... We were both standing in front of the altar, 
and the moonlight through the stained glass window fell upon the ground before us. As I would not let go of the cloak, the shadow turned round and beneath the hood, I saw a terrifying skull whose staring eyes burned with the fire of hell. I thought I was face to face with Satan. It was like a vision from beyond the grave. I felt so helpless that I lost consciousness, and I remember nothing more until I came to at the setting sun. And so that that was Raoul's actual firsthand account of what happened, which um, LaRue reads later. In a, a, I think I believe a policeman was taking this testimony from him. So that's mm-hmm. where he's getting what we just heard from. And uh, obviously the Phantom was out there in the churchyard faking this violin music. So he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of gaslighting Christine. Oh. Not kind of. I mean, he, he's doing an he's totally. extreme. Yeah, he's making her think that her father's ghost is hanging out and still teaching her. So this is some pretty creepy manipulation. And I think that's a good place for us to stop. Yeah. For this episode. Lots of interesting stuff being set up here. And um, I really, really like this book. Yeah, this is a really fun, fun book. It's a quick read. It's really interesting. And maybe it's because I was a fan of the musical. Right. But I'm actually surprised at how the musical is pretty accurate to the original story. Yeah, it follows and pulls from this book pretty uh, pretty extensively. And yeah, it just it kind of lays it all out. There's some extra horrific details in this book that aren't present in the musical. Yeah. Uh, which we'll get to. I also really, of course, love that silent film that you referenced earlier with Lon Chaney. Oh, yeah, of course. His makeup is just amazing yeah. in that movie. It's really freaky. And, and it's, really it's, scary. It's iconic. It's one of those makeup effects that is, yeah. you know, 100 years after the fact, it's still effective what was so cool back then is you would keep your special makeup effects a secret it was almost like doing magic so he knows exactly what he put himself through to get that appearance but he would do Mm -hmm. some pretty extreme things to himself in order yeah yeah get the the london after midnight i remember he put wires under his eyes to make them bulge out and he had animal teeth in his mouth and he was just a cool guy you know who else is cool (laughs) (laughs) our reader today jamie andrews oh my god she was amazing yes i believe jamie's gonna be along for the whole ride we're so glad to have her and uh, you know who else we appreciate? Our uh, our patrons. Oh, my God. Do we ever. I want to thank Mark Harper. I want to thank Margaret McGovern. I'd love to thank Lee J. Jones. Alexander Kelly, thank you so much for being a patron. Thank you, Richard Bremner. Glenn Booth, thank you. Thank you, Gwyneth Jones. Brent Warren, you are the bee's knees. I want to thank Josh. Everybody does. And finally, I want to thank our excellent patron, Joe Spiro. You guys are all wonderful. Thanks for being part of the team, allowing us to dive into this book, as well as all the other weird fiction we read. That's all we have for you this week, but we'll be back with more Phantom next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. On Patreon and hppodcraft.com. Podcraft.com has produced this record from actual recordings made at sea.